1: Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3 of our daily three-hour tour and uh, sending you on your way home. It is a uh, delight and uh, honor to bring back to the show. been a long time, my fault, uh, to bring back to the show David Marcus. He is a columnist and author over at Fox News, of course, and uh, author of a new book as well, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. His piece is critical reading in Fox News at Fox News Online today, foxnews.com. FoxNews.com. What Rashida Tlaib reveals about how the left really feels on antisemitism. David, thank you for being with us and welcome back to the airwaves of Phoenix.
2: Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: I want to issue another thank you, and I, I don't really quite have the perfect words for it. But as uh, one of uh, one, of, just as just as a humble member of the Jewish community, um, thank you for all that you've been saying and all that you've been writing. We can't do it alone here. We can't do it without righteous people such as yourself. And um I've been watching the things you've been doing on Megan Kelly's show and others. Um just a heartfelt thank you. It means more than words can say.
2: I, I appreciate that enormously. You know, I'm a Catholic but my father was Jewish as was his whole family and so uh this is, this holds a very deep place in my heart and um yeah, you know this is this is not this is not one of those both sides situations. This is really a, a clarion call uh, for all good decent people to, to to understand that that Hamas just can't be allowed to win here.
1: Something tells me, you know, I notice it's on your bio over on Twitter at Bluebox or Twitter X Twix, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Blue Box Dave is your handle. I notice you've moved from you were in New York. You've moved to West Virginia. Curious question, and I'm guessing I. think think i'm going to be right about what i'm going to say i'm going to guess that despite the tremendous jewish population in new york maybe perhaps in in some respects because of it there's a little bit more 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 moral clarity in west virginia where you now live than there is in new york city is that possibly true
2: yeah no i i I think that it is in fact about two weeks ago um a buddy of mine here a guy who's part of the local tea party he caught wind that there was going to be at uh shepherdstown university a pro-palestinian protest and i was very interested to sort of go check it out because i knew i i I hadn't lived here at the time but i knew that back during the blm and george floyd stuff they had had significant protests there right it's west virginia but it's a college town right Mm -hmm. so these places run kind of lefty Mm -hmm. so i didn't know exactly what to expect i was expecting maybe 100 200 people something like that um, I didn't get a story out of it, Seth, but I'm I'm really glad I didn't because it turned out to be about 20 people. Nothing. Probably yeah. only five or six were students. Yeah. The rest of the student body was kind of quizzically looking at them, like eh, I don't think I want any part of this. Yeah. Uh, and so that was good to see. It was certainly nothing like what we saw in Boston at Harvard or in Philadelphia at Penn. It was it was very very poorly attended, which was, which was good.
1: I I do want to get to your column, and it kind of does get us there in a certain respect. That but. The mentioning of those, that list you just did, Harvard, Penn, and even Columbia University. What is it about these elite of elitists, places, fairly, supposedly highly educated? Why are we seeing the worst of the worst there, of all places, and with young minds? Well, because
2: they were always the early adopters of political correctness, which those of us who are old enough know is the the, the term we used to use for wokeness, right mm-hmm. yeah. um, The elite institutions were always where this started. I went you know I, I attended a very prestigious prep school in Philadelphia in the early 1990s. And so I was already seeing this, yep. right? I've, I've known about this for 30 years because this, this was already it was already poking its head there. Mm-hmm. It would take another decade before it starts to get into state colleges. It would take another five years before those state college teachers started getting into our elementary and high schools. Yep. And so over the past 30 years... This is just spread like a disease when, you know, the left is very fond of saying like that, oh, there's never CRT in the schools. Right. That's just the graduate law theory. <laughs> no, what it really is, is a graduate teacher education theory. Right. And they're right in one sense. Critical race theory isn't taught in the schools. It's implemented. Right.
1: Right. In the schools. That's a good way to put it. That's actually a really good distinction. And they train up for what will be taught. Right. I mean, the elementary and secondary education system is always looking with an eye towards what it is the colleges want. Right. And what you're supposed to be conditioned to for once you get into colleges, yeah. The colleges flow upwards that same level to the grad schools and the law schools. Right. It's it's one long conditioning, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And then the next thing you know you know, t- 25 years from now, some crazy person who's out there, you know, chanting from the river to the sea is the U.S. attorney, you know, in Atlanta right, right. or the federal judge that your kid is appearing in front of because, right. you know, they voted Republican.
1: By the way, I, so I, I presume the federal judges and the U.S. attorneys know what from the river to the sea means. Do you think the college students do? I know. You know, it's a good question. I, I think. A lot I, I, of them- I know. I wrestle with it myself. I think a lot of them probably don't,
2: um, and I thought that Rashida Talib's lying yeah. about it. What was was absolutely shameful, but this isn't new. This is a common tactic of the left, right? Like Black Lives Matter was kind of the same thing, where it's like it's an anodyne phrase, yeah. and like yes, yeah, of course I think Black Lives Matter. Any decent person does, right? But there's a difference between that and the Marxist organization that built millions and right. millions is of dollars What does Patrice Colors think
1: it means is different from what you and I think it means, right? Yes. And right. So
2: I think, I, yeah, no, do I think that most of the college students who are chanting that think that it means the erasure of the state of Israel, which it demonstrably does? Maybe half of them do. Do they understand that it was actually coined by Hamas, mm-hmm. and not only does it mean the destruction of Israel, it means, if that means we have to kill a bunch of Jews, okay. So I, I don't know how many... And and it's a scary thought if that's a big number. But I I honestly don't I don't know how you'd even determine
1: that. But it does get us to your column. Uh, that the, at least that that very point that you rested mm-hmm. that questions uh, that answer on what Rashida Talib reveals about how the left really. Feels on anti-Semitism. David Marcus, the author over at FoxNews.com, is where his piece appears. Let me start it this way. You know, she tries to give good use of the word anodyne of yours. She tries to give an anodyne explanation for it, nothing but an aspiration. Um, The problem is we know that she knows better than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she weaponizes that, if you will, or she uses the criticism of her to kind of hide behind her own, what, ethnicity or nationality as an attack on that. It's not. It's a reaction to words I can't say, damn it, we don't stand for genocide in this country.
2: Yeah, and and and, and it's deeply, deeply hypocritical as well, because right. part of our argument is that well, she's not trying to be anti-Semitic, right? <laughs> right, right. It's not like my, my, my motivation here isn't to be anti-Semitic. And, she, you know, as, as, as you see in the article, she gets some backup there from New York Magazine right. where this very progressive guy says, you know, well, wait a minute, you can't ever know what the motivation is, so we should really judge Just whether something right is anti-Semitism yeah. based on what it says explicitly, not potential motivation. And I read those words, Seth, and my brain exploded mm-hmm. because... We just talked about what I've seen happening since the early 90s. -hmm. Well, certainly for the past 20 years, Mm -hmm. we've been told by the left that your intent doesn't matter when it comes to racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. It is utterly irrelevant. Mm -hmm. You need to police your own speech and be actively anti-racist or you're a racist. We've also been told that the marginalized group decides what is and isn't defensive. Right. So if a black person or a gay person says, don't say this, the left says, well, you have to respect that. That's not true for Jews, we now see. Because Jews are saying, wait a minute, when you say from the river to the sea, that sounds to me like you want to kill me and my family. Would you mind finding another phrase? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. No, we're not going to find another phrase. It's it's a glaring double standard. It's unbelievable.
1: It's a glaring double standard in a month I guess just about exactly a month of seemingly glaring a lot of glaring double standards. And what is it about this? What is it about? Uh, what is it about Israel? What is it about the Jewish people that the double standard always does appear? Um, you, you get the question. You understand
2: it? Yeah. In, in regard to the left, I'm sold. Years and years. I might say 25, 30 years ago. Had an interesting answer to this question that I think also applies to the Asian community today, yep. who, next to the Jews, are the are the biggest targets of um, uh, hate crimes, right? sure. Yes, and what it has to do with is the fact that both groups and they mirror each other in some ways. Both groups are groups that came here, were treated with a lot of bigotry. Um, you know, were not handed a whole lot of advantages, and yet succeeded. Yeah. Right. And for some similar reasons. And, you know, in both cultures, education was so strongly pushed um, that, that but, you know, and the left says, oh, they're just they're being considered a model minority. And like and so for Asians and Jews, similar to white people you're allowed to knock them, yeah. right, in a way that you're not allowed to knock other minorities. And on the left, I think that's mostly what's going on. And
1: then there. you graft on them this additional justification in this oppressor or oppressed yeah. scheme. Let me, let me take a quick commercial break, David, yeah. if I can keep you one more segment. I'd love to yeah. pick up on that. David Marcus is our guest over at Fox News. He's a columnist and author. Shared The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation is his book. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. David Marcus is our guest. His book, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation, not perhaps the exact topic for today, although there's some interesting parallels, uh, of course. Uh, we're talking about his uh, most recent piece over at FoxNews.com, a piece titled What What, Shari- what Rashida Talib Reveals About How the Left Really Feels on Antisemitism. We were getting into this just before the break, David. David. Um, why the Jews and the double standards, for that matter? You were right to raise also the Asians or the Asian American experience here, where double standards fly. We see this in particularly uh, the lawsuits uh, on affirmative action, race-based affirmative action, etc. We also tend to see it actually in moments of of, of crime too. We see targeted target Asian American communities. I saw this in in L.A. when I when I used to live there a long time ago. It seems there's a I don't know if we we hear oppressed and oppressor all the time now, but it does seem like that is an unarticulated justification for not only some of the double standards, but some of the Jew hatred we have been seeing, and perhaps even the attacks against Israel themselves, where the Jews and Israel itself are seen as the oppressor. Through this lens, you were putting your finger on it a little bit in the previous segment, at the university, this this Marxist thought where you can actually justify, you know, the Franz Fanon stuff, the Jean-Paul Sartre stuff, the Wretched of the Earth kind of... The reason the PLO is not called the Palestine Terrorist Organization is they believe there is a justifiable use of violence against anyone who is deemed an oppressor, a colonialist, an imperialist, a racist, right? There's some of that going on here, too.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, <coughs> pardon me. um People hear the term "cultural Marxist" yep. thrown around, right? Yep. And it's exactly what you're describing. So, you know, Marxism starting in the in the middle of the 19th century, Marx and Engels identified oppressed and oppressor in economic terms. Right. So it was the wealthy and the bourgeoisie against the working class. The wealthy mm-hmm. and the bourgeoisie being the oppressors and the oppressed, right? And Marx was quite explicit that yes, violence is perfectly fine. To, to allow the working class to take over, and we saw that with the Bolsheviks, we saw that in the Russian Revolution. In the Chinese Revolution, we start to see this cultural flavor emerge, yep. Yep. and it becomes very popular in the United States, where now, instead of the rich and bourgeoisie versus the working class, it is um, – it is identities Mm -hmm. and cultures Mm -hmm. so it is white versus black Mm -hmm. right it's Mm -hmm. israeli versus palestinian it's the same basic dynamic that like the oppressor side always has to be wrong right and the oppressed side always has to be right no matter how violent they are no matter you know how many babies they put into ovens Mm -hmm. um so so in that way it remains the same but yeah it's it's allowed in this particular case for a very uncomfortable moment on the left because there are a lot of people on the left who were comfortable with and I don't love the term anti-white I, I really don't like I'm, as a white person living in the United States I don't feel threatened I, so uh, you know I I, I, I hear I, you I, yeah. I use that term very, very carefully, but they're comfortable with that in a way that they're not comfortable with that being used against Jews. Mm-hmm. And so that's where this tension is now in the Democrat Party, where you had 22 Democrats mm-hmm. vote to censure to leave mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because there's still a big base in that party that says, whoa all right, you want to you wanna say, like, blacks can't be racist against whites, all right, I don't care. You want to say there's no such thing as anti-Semitism, now we got a problem.
1: Yeah, and it is big, but it's not big enough, I would suggest. I mean, it seems to me this just shouldn't have been that hard, but it gives one a sense of how great that tug is, that tug towards the progressive or the neo-Marxist view, um, it seems to me. I mean, I think there was a tell here where one of the earliest rally, rallies on behalf of the Gazans was was the BLM rallies and, and the BLM rallies with the insignia of, uh, of uh, you know, paratroopers, uh, to paratrooping yeah. terrorists. That was a tell. And when a few former BLM supporters expressed shock, the Patrice Colleur said, if you're expressing shock, you never understood us in the first place. This is the side we were always on. Hell, yeah, that's right. You and I knew that.
2: Yeah, and there's, you know, one of the things that I've written about, I haven't written about it in regard to this particular conflict, but I've written about it in the past, is, you know, I, I come at this, I, you know, I told you earlier in the interview that half my family was Jewish. The reason I'm Catholic is that my mom was an Irish Catholic, and I grew up in a family that was pretty much pro-IRA. Yeah. Um, you know, we viewed that as a, a centuries-old struggle, and we wanted the British out of Ireland, right, Like, mm-hmm. like most Irish Catholics yeah. did. And we understood. I mean, I'm talking about the early '80s here, right? Mid '80s. And we understood that the IRA sometimes wound up killing civilians. Now, they, they did it in a very different way. They they, they generally provided warnings. There were there were screw ups, right? They killed hundreds. Yeah, but they over, you know. over about 20 years, they killed hundreds of civilians. They didn't
1: strut about it. Let's say that. No, but
2: and and, and there's the difference, right? If first of all, we never celebrated a Protestant right. civilian being killed ever. That would have been beyond the pale for us. But more than that, and more importantly, had the IRA ever done anything in the 1980s like we saw at that music festival, mm-hmm. their Irish-American Catholic support would have evaporated instantly. Absolutely. I think most right. of their Irish right. Catholic support in Ireland would have evaporated right. instantly. Right. And these ter- a terrorist organization can only go as far as their supporters are willing to go. And quite frankly, Hamas' supporters are, are willing – I don't know, where do they end? If you can put a baby in the oven, then, then what what can't you do?
1: Were you shocked, by the way, by the I think enormity is the right word by the enormity of support the Hamas the Hamas attack has gained not just obviously in the Middle East, forget that, but here in America. Were you were you shocked by the enormity of that, or at least the callous indifference to the to the slaughter of innocents?
2: Yes and no. Yes, yes, in that I, you know when I saw those initial protests and when I said there were a lot of people in Washington D.C. I guess it was last weekend, right? And look, the left is very good at organizing, but I do think there have been some positive signs. I mentioned that protest at yep. Town where like, nobody was. Fox News today yep. is covering what's supposed to be a huge protest at Columbus Circle in New York, and so far it looks like 15 people are there. So I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag, Yeah. but, but listen, <laughs> Anybody, much less a member of Congress who's yeah. sort of on the fence, and there's several of them yeah. like on the fence about this stuff. That's real. That's real reason for concern. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, David, thank you. It's Friday evening where you are. I want to thank you for your time and joining us. I want to thank you for your column and all your columns, uh, really for uh, for many years, but also in this this especially uh, poignant moment. Thank you for. Um, Thank you for your voice. I appreciate you, for, you, I appreciate you having me. And, you bet. And
2: listen, it's going to be interesting in Arizona. I'm yeah. It's going to be interesting in West Virginia, too, but yeah. I'm definitely keeping an eye on Arizona.
1: All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on you and uh, hopefully uh, get you back for uh, we can, so we can open our ears to you more. David Marcus, thank you very much, sir. Bless you. Thanks, bless. Seth. Have a great weekend. You, you betcha. I'm Seth, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Lipsen Show. That's Arlo Guthrie. That's not a. That's a young Arlo Guthrie. Do we have his? Um, do we have his uh, train song, uh, "City of New Orleans," in um, our bumper? You know it. Not yet. Don't you know it? Yeah. Good morning, America. I am How are you? The
3: city of New Orleans. Yeah, on the city. On the yeah. train,
1: they call the city of New. Orleans. Train songs.
3: Train songs. We love
1: train songs. There are a lot of good train They're songs. They're all good. The Gambler is a train song
3: it takes place on a train it takes yes. place it's a train song yes
1: yeah we once years ago threatened to do a train song music day and it never happened
3: chattanooga choo-choo the atchison topeka and the santa fe
1: how about the of the freedom train record the old 97
3: 97 yeah
1: that's a great one i once
3: yeah okay
1: um <laughs> uh it's hard to follow up um it's tough to follow up with David. He's he's very good. He's he's an he's an interesting commentator and writer. His background is in theater, actually, David. That would be of appeal to you. You may want to research him a little bit. He used to do big theater productions. So did I at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's funny. Yeah, you, and and um, it's interesting. He moved from um, the entertainment arts. I suppose one might say to the arts of politics, the political arts. And – or at least the political craft and, you know, he's a regular writer and commentator. He's on a lot of podcasts. I've seen him lately a lot on the Megyn Kelly show. Megyn Kelly will be a moderator for the next uh, debate, uh, which is going to be taking place in Alabama on, if I'm not mistaken, December 6th, which is an interesting day. December 6th is an interesting day when you think about the moment we're in because it's obviously the day before Pearl Harbor Day. Everyone knows December 7th. Most people I think almost everyone knows December 7th. December 7th, so.
3: 1941, the yeah. day which will live in infamy.
1: Most people still remember it. I wonder if they do if they're under 55, but my mom um my mom was born on December 6th in uh, 1933. And for whatever reason her birthday party was scheduled that year, uh, 1941. Would that have been her eighth birthday? It was scheduled for December 7th, the next day. And um, that used to be a thing. I don't know if it's still true. I remember when I was growing up, sometimes you didn't celebrate your birthday or your birthday party. Oh, I'm sure. It yeah. depends on the day of the yeah. week. Maybe yeah. if it
3: occurred on a Friday. You yeah, maybe. You'd have a bigger, on a, a bigger yeah. party yeah. on a Saturday. Yeah,
1: <laughs> do it the next day. Uh, and she said no one came, so obviously. That. Yeah, I mean—
3: that's it's eight or nine in the morning Hawaii time it, it, would have been mid afternoon in Phoenix if make, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and
1: she would have been in Boston, so it would have been probably Even later. Yeah, well, mm. it would have been a little later. But so it might have been. An, in any event, I remember her telling me. Yeah, she remembers it very well because it was the day no one came for her birthday. Anyway, there's going to be a debate December sixth in Alabama, and I was thinking about the last debate in context of the next one. And I was thinking about the arts of politics and the uses of politics. Interesting, you wouldn't necessarily have known this, but it was the of the three debates it was that the presidents have gone through. It's the um, it was the it, it was the least viewed. Uh, there was a steady decline of viewership from the first debate to the second, and indeed, uh, the debate that took place uh, uh, two nights ago was uh, received just under five million views. And it was trounced by uh, Country Music Awards, the CMA Awards, which received almost 7.6 million views.
3: Out of curiosity, are there any viewership uh, counts or I don't know if they still keep those for the live viewings of President Trump's uh, simulcast speech? I didn't see it. I didn't see it either. And I don't know that it was covered by any –
1: I don't think it was covered by any cable. I don't think it would have been. Right, It might have been on one of the it, – it was probably on Truth Social or his mm. platform, I guess. I'd you know,
3: just be interested to see those viewership ratings. You know?
1: And that, and of course it's really hard to know because of the way they, eye, they count eyeballs, it can be just for a few moments. But I was thinking about that contrast where more viewers tuned in to see the CMA, the Country Music Awards, <clears> than <throat> did the presidential debate. And I think there's something both healthy and unhealthy about it. I was just kind of thinking about it. I hear the music, so this was a short segment. We'll come back. Let's talk about that when we come back. I'm Seth Leapson, 602 508 We'll be right back. Welcome back. There's the old 97. So we went out, those lyrics were a little hardcore on the lyrics we went out with, but it was from the train song, The Wreck of the Old 97, which is about a true story. Do you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's about a uh, a real uh, train wreck. In fact, you heard the... lyrics there orders monroe virginia steve you're way behind time that was the name of the conductor who wrecked the old 97 uh steven something or other steve something or other and he wrecked it because he was going so fast trying to make up time that was the orders you're way behind time he was trying to make up time and he wrecked the old 97 which is uh i i i think it was a record breaking train crash but um I suppose that's what country music used to sound like, actually, now that I was thinking about the CMA Awards. That is what country music used to sound like. It sounds a little bit different now. But this notion that the CMA Awards received so many more viewers, millions more viewers than did the GOP debate, can have a lot of explanations. I mean, one obvious and basic explanation is that the GOP debates may not be that meaningful because... The person who's most likely, uh, by a preponderance of the evidence, if not beyond almost anything like a reasonable doubt, was not on the debate stage. And so the question is, why would I tune it to a to a to a debate about nothing? In a certain sense, in a certain sense, of course, one never knows. But you think about all we're going through, and occasionally you'll get people on this show. You'll hear callers on this show. You hear it editorialists, books. There's even movements questioning. And every 10 years or so, someone comes out with a book on, directed towards conservatives, to kind of maybe recede from politics a little bit. Focus more on your life. Focus more on your culture. Focus more on your life. Focus more on the culture. And country music is perhaps a benchmark of so many important cultural things. You think about what the songs are about. Really more over the last 40 and 50 years, they're about the kind of most important things in life. They're about family. They're about love. They're about marriage. They're about relationships. They're about breakups of relationships. They're about up of marriages. Uh, You also hear an awful lot about Other things that are deeply impactful to life, like there's a lot about drug use and a lot about alcoholism in country music. It's really the whole warp and woof of all the cultural stressors and stresses we go through. And maybe it's good that more people are tuning in to watch country musicians talk about their songs and sing them. That's what's wonderful about these award shows, right, is they sing them. And there is this notion that C.S. Lewis has that we think too much, perhaps, about politics. Um, His line is, a sick society must think much about politics, as a sick man must think much about digestion. To ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice for one as for the other. But if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, of other things, then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. That's C.S. Lewis. You know, think of politics for exigent and urgent moments, um, not as the normal daily fare, just as you think of medicine as for exigent and uh, aberrational moments, not as your normal daily fare. It's interesting. You think about the overuse of medicine, um, particularly when we're talking about, you know, narcotics or prescription opioids. Uh, They have their use. They have their purpose, right? But it is their overuse, their illegal use, their misuse that, is the sign of something extremely unhealthy, more unhealthy indeed than what they were used for in the first place, what they were prescribed for in the first place. And one may have the right reason, one may have um, good reason to think that's true of politics too. Before your tenure as my producer, David, Mr. Bill and I, when he um, was—he is your predecessor before his— before before he left, he and I would often talk about, particularly in twenty twenty, the overabundant areas which politics had infiltrated, places that used to be apolitical, places that used to be reprieves from politics, places of recreation, uh places of well, think about the NBA uh or any or the NFL or any of the professional athletics where you would kinda Think politics shouldn't necessarily be. They became some of the most overtly political places in the country. There was no, in other words, safe space from politics. Uh, you, it, it was unavoidable. It was everywhere. First with COVID, and then with the BLM riots and the BLM insignias and incantations, and even yet a little bit before that, perhaps the die was cast a little bit before that with the with the um, the earlier efforts of your Colin Kaepernick's trying to make a thing of uh, of the national anthem and uh, using it as an example of uh, – using it as a, a moment to grab the microphone, a moment to use his megaphone to declaim about America against America, These the, these were shocks to the system where politics became – so all invasive and so pervasive of every part of our society. And it's kind of an interesting question because while I think CS Lewis is right, it shouldn't be everywhere and it shouldn't be all the time. And it's perhaps healthy that people were tuning into the CMA awards uh over and against a political debate. I do think most of our problems do require political solutions. I, I there's this great back and forth about culture and politics and what is more important. But most of our problems are not going to be solved culturally. They're going to be solved politically. I do believe that. And there is a fine line. We'll be right back. Do you trust this economy? How about a secure investment that actually helps people? Why refi has that? You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return with Y-Refi, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. You're in control. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it whatever you like, and there are absolutely no fees. You can have peace of mind. There's no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. And you'll get your monthly statement. No surprises. It's a secure, collateralized portfolio. It may be a better option for you than where you have your money now. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then Y R E F Y dot com, Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24. That's 888-Y-REFI-24. Now, I messed up my last hour thinking that was my last segment, but this really is our last segment, is it not, young David? Yep. All right.
3: I saved you from the brink. Yeah, 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 Pulled you back from the ledge. With
1: all the semaphores and the flailings of arms. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's been a long week, so hopefully—listen, do have—I do want to wish everyone a meaningful Veterans Day. Just to tie a bow on that last point um, that I was making about politics and culture, um, it is a fine line. You don't want to overdo politics. I don't know about you, David. Is it true? When you go to a reception or a party or at a gathering or whatever, do you bring up politics? I never do.
3: No, but politics are already sitting in the room. The sheer openness that certain people feel able to talk about hot-button issues like abortion and sexuality and, uh, well, now it's war.
1: (laughs) Hey, question for you on that are the people who are talking about it in the room or who bring it up first, are they typically liberals or conservatives? Typically liberals. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. That's, that's right. Is. Yeah, because they think everything is political all the time. There's that old phrase, I think it was Shulamit Firestone, one of the early neo-feminists of the 1970s, neo-Marxist feminists. She said the personal is political. Everything, in other words, is is to be political. And... um and a liberal walks into a room, as Amy Wax Punts put it, a liberal walks into a room uh, that she doesn't know and assumes the room is with her, you know, believes in what she believes. A conservative walks into a room he or she doesn't know, and they assume the room is against them. And Gosh, that's, to
3: have had such confidence. Yeah,
1: right? Yeah, to have had such confidence. Any event— I have never, and I'll get emails on this, I have never agreed that politics is downstream from culture. I don't believe that. I do think you have to change the culture, but I think politics has an inordinate impact on it, an inordinate impact on it. And if you think I'm wrong, just look about look about yourselves when you think about Roe and Dobbs and the culture we live in today. All right. Listen, God bless you all, folks. It's been a great week. It's been a long week. I hope you have a restful weekend. Good holiday. Until Monday, for Mr. Bill, for David Dahl, for Miss Terry, I'm Seth Leapson. God bless him. Class dismissed.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.